In Luke, we are looking at chapter number 20 this morning, verses 9 through 19. Let's read those together. Then he began to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at, that, at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandman that he should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. And he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, we are thankful for time together in the word with the church. Help us not to take this time for granted, but to truly consider what your word is saying. To open our hearts and minds to your Holy Spirit as he illuminates for us the word. Help us to be being made more like Christ through the reading and the preaching and the hearing preached of your word. Lord, we long for the day that we are with you and we are glorified, but we're thankful in this time that you've justified us and that you are sanctifying us. You've taken away our sin debt. You are conforming us to the image of Christ. And someday we'll be restored again as we were first created in the garden, sinless and in communion with God. So, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word as your guide and your Holy Spirit as our indweller who convicts us and comforts us and leads us. So help us this morning to not go against the grain, but to submit and to go along and do what your word tells us to do. This we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. I would assume that most of us enjoy hearing stories. There is fun that comes from hearing or telling or even acting out stories. And if a story is a good one, it will entertain while it also will teach us a lesson. No doubt you are familiar with, say, Aesop's fables that were very good at this particular thing. Or maybe you're more familiar with the Andy Griffith show. Notice how I said that very pastorly to make it mean more, right? Well, here we have Jesus, and he's speaking to a group of Israelites. Specifically, he seems to be addressing what verse 19 tells us are the chief priests and the scribes. And he tells a story. In this story, he presents Israel's history of response to God. Like many of his parables, 
This story, the lesson is rebuke to the nation of Israel. The leaders and the people alike share in the guilt and the blame of what Jesus portrays here and what we'll call the parable of the wicked tenants. This man has planted a vineyard on his land. He's gone away, but he he left it with some tenants. His servants came to check in on things and they beat them. He sent again and they beat them. He sent again. And he said, well, I'll just send my son. And they thinking, well, we'll kill the heir and we'll have the land. They, they kill the son. And then Jesus concludes with some very convicting words to not just Israel, but to these leaders in Israel in this time about what this means directly to them. And they say something that is often said in the scriptures, but in this instance is concerning to me. At the end of verse number 16, we see two words there. Do you see those words? God forbid. Another way that is often translated is, may it never be. Well, if you don't want something to ever be, well, then you don't take actions to that end. You've been warned, you've been told. But just days later, these very folks will put Jesus on the cross and they will kill the son. So this is the story. The son removed through death, yet this will not leave the vineyard with the leaders of the people. Instead, it will go to others, Jesus says here. And in fact, that is what they wish will never be. Not that the husbandmen will mistreat the servants of the Lord or that the the, the Lord's son will not be murdered for greed, but that the vineyard will not be taken from them and given to others. So we finally find Jesus conveying here in the end that the wicked can neither destroy the son nor the promises. He begins in these last verses, 17, 18, and 19, talking about this chief cornerstone. Though rejected, is not moved, and in fact it becomes that which crushes others. So let's take some time and consider this parable, the parable of the wicked tenants. Jesus begins this story referring to a vineyard in verse number nine. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. Now this image is rich with Old Testament and Jewish background, alluding to the presence of promise in Israel. If you read in Psalm chapter number 80, verses 8 through 13, you will find these words. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Now, when the psalmist says that, who is the vine? Israel. We understand the vine is Israel. This is a part of a promise, an old covenant promise. Thou hast cut out the heathen and planted it. Well, who are the heathen? Everybody besides Israel. Thou preparest room before it. Thou didst cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. The thou there being God and the things, the actions that he has taken there, these provisions that he has taken for his people Israel. Isaiah 5, you find similar wording toward this type of a promise. Now I will sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with a choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. Now somebody who does all of this, how do they feel about this vineyard? Oh, they love it. They're glad to have it. 
They want to experience it and enjoy it and be around it. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. You see the conflict there in Isaiah's prophecy. God says, say this to my people. What more could I have done for you as a, as a people? And when I went to have the grapes, it wasn't what I'd planted. It wasn't what I'd cultivated. It wasn't what I'd removed stones and put a fence around to grow. There were wild grapes. How can this be? Now, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. Verse 7 there in Isaiah 5 is for those a little bit more dense, maybe hearing Isaiah's prophecy. They're not, they weren't quite sure if he meant them. And so he says, I'm talking to you. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a crime. I point this out just to say that Jesus' parable here, in the ears of these chief priests and scribes, this isn't news. They would portray it as news. They would say, this guy is hurting the harmony of Israel. This guy is disturbing our worship of the one true God. And Jesus is simply saying to them what he said in other places. This day is prophecy fulfilled in your ears. They, they knew these scriptures or they should have known these scriptures. God had been dealing with Israel in this way for years and years and years. They would bless them. They would grow content. They would turn to sin in the world against him. He would judge them. They would call out for help and repentance and he would forgive them and he would bless again. And you find that cycle all throughout the old covenant texts. But you get up to the gospels and the promised one comes. And we live post that. We live on this side of the cross. But he comes and instead of embracing, they're, they're rejecting still. In Jesus' story, verse number nine there, he also places tenants in the vineyard. So there is the promise, there is the vineyard, but then there are the husbandmen. And let it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. This enriches the old covenant imagery by setting up the role of the nation and the leadership as caretakers of this promise, this vineyard, which is significant. Because the parable concludes with the vineyard given to others, which we would see as a reference to Gentile inclusion in the promise. So as saddening as this passage may be to our religious ears, don't ever forget that God working in such a way is while you're, while you're in a church this morning. It's why you as a Gentile have a Bible in your hands this morning. It's a unique thing. In verse 10, 11, and 12, the servants are sent to the vineyard, to the vineyard and the tenants who were there. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. Again, he sent another servant. They beat him also and entreated him shamefully, sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Now, Jesus doesn't have to explain for our brains to understand the opposite of 
what is happening should be happening here. He planted this vineyard. He led it forth to them. He lent it to them. He sharecropped with them for a while while he's in a far country. He sends his servants. And what does he expect them to return with? Grapes. Or the profit from these grapes. Or if nothing else, a good report. You had a great harvest and it will be profitable, useful. No, the report is they beat us. They treated us shamefully. They sent us away empty. The servant here is representative in the ears of the Pharisees and the chief priests, the prophets that God sent to his nation all throughout the old covenant writings whom they rejected. And their rejection from the human perspective is understood. Well, it was just negativity all the time. It's just doom and gloom. I went down there. I was having a bad week. I was hoping he'd give me something uplifting and helpful. And all he told me was how rotten I was and how God was going to judge me for my rottenness if I didn't change. So these servants here, they represent those prophets. The nation is a, a poor tenant. It's lacking fruit. It's abusing those. Sent to check on its work. Look back at chapter 13. Just flip back two or three passages. Just hold your, your place here in chapter 20. Jesus has already spoken about this. In chapter 13, verse number 6, Luke records Jesus saying in parable, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and he found none. Then said he to the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after thou shalt cut it down. Go back to chapter 20. The idea being there that fruit was expected. The cause for fruit and then for repentance in its absence have been rejected. They have been ignored. Three times the owner's representatives are cast out here. Now that God sends three separate times is very significant. Specifically, Jesus is pointing out that God sent prophets to the nation repeatedly. What would this say to you if you're an Israelite? Your God is long-suffering. Your God is merciful. Your God is gracious. In fact, in our day too often, the God of the old covenant is not seen that way. He's simply seen as wrathful. And He is wrathful. But He's merciful. And He's good. And He's just. So it's significant in this parable to that end. But in our time, it's a reminder also that God is long-suffering. Not, not a one of us here this morning, I would guess, could say, I've lived perfectly this week. Anybody who need to, if, you should come preach if this is the case. Are there any takers on that? Just come tell us what you did. Now that is not to say you haven't been striving But our God is long-suffering. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that He's merciful, that He's gracious, that His mercies are renewed every single morning? R.C. Sproul wrote here, he said that normally a landowner confronted with persistent refusal to pay and with abuse of his messengers would take strong measures. But just as this landowner keeps giving the tenants opportunity for repentance, 
So God repeatedly reaches out to his rebellious people. This parable speaks of the last opportunity for Israel to bear for its owner the fruit that is his before judgment ensues. And I would give that same warning to us here this morning. God is merciful. You're not here with this passage in our minds on accident. Maybe this is God's last warning to you. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's just one more, but the appropriate response is not to have to keep getting warned. The appropriate response is to repent, to change, to to, to live otherwise. So the story begins with a vineyard. It continues with a son. In verse 13, 14, and 15, the vineyard owner, who we understand to be God, decides to send his son. In fact, he calls him my son, whom I love. Verse 13, then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. His hope is that the stubborn tenants who beat his servants will at least respect his son. So there's this anticipation that the son's visit will be fruitful. Now, in the time of the mystery, in the time of the gospel not being fully culminated on earth to human minds, we understand that there's just this anticipation of this son's visit being fruitful. And then we read in the life of Christ how they assumed it was going to be fruitful. Oh, today's the day. He's on the horse. He's riding into town. Our king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We, we talk about this on Palm Sunday. And what they didn't know is that Jesus' visit would be fruitful but in a much different way as this foreshadows his death upon the cross, which I love how C.S. Lewis lays out so well in his line, the witch in the wardrobe is Aslan, the lion king returns and the people say, hooray, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then he lays himself down upon the stone and that is his way. We understand that because the mystery has been revealed But these then did not quite have that understanding. They had it foretold to them. But differently than us, they lived. Verse 14 then, when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. With logic that illustrates sin's blindness. These tenants decide that if they slay the son, they will inherit the land. Now, this is Jesus pointing out to them how far their wickedness has gone. There's an ancient custom for us to understand here. If the land belonged to someone without an heir, when the owner died, the land usually passed on to those who worked the land. It just seemed to be the right thing to do. So their scheming here assumes that their murdering will not be discovered. And then because they're the ones who work the land, then they'll inherit it now that the heir has died, either because the the owner has died already, since his son is there, or when he dies, they will have it. But nevertheless, you just see their greed. It's a major blind spot in their thinking. Given their past track record with these servants, I can't imagine people in their area wouldn't assume them to be the murder suspects should the heir be killed. But this teaches us that Hardness of heart does strange things. Warren Wearsby remarks, in this parable, Jesus illustrated the subtle nature of sin. 
The more we sin, the worse it becomes. The tenants started off beating some of the servants and wounding others, but they ended up becoming murderers. The Jewish leaders permitted John the Baptist to be killed. They asked for Jesus to be crucified. Then they themselves stoned Stephen. Interesting, isn't it? Another way to think of this is that the tenants assumed since the son came that the father had died. In fact, that would be my take on this passage. Not the most popular take. And if this were Jesus' meaning, well, I would say the parable is all the more convicting because what is Jesus portraying to these national religious leaders, these chief priests and scribes, if he says in his story, when the man sent his son, they decided to kill him. Well, their assumption is this is the heir, so the the landowner must be dead or he would have come himself. So Jesus is pointing out to Israel, you're operating as if your God is dead. Well, that explains verse 19, doesn't it? The chief priests and the scribes that same hour sought to lay hands on him. Awfully convicting. I can't directly in Scripture give that interpretation to the modern church, but but I do want to throw it up as a cautionary tale to the modern church. We often have a form of godliness while denying the power thereof. We operate as if our God were dead. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. So verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard, they killed him, which is foretelling Jesus' death. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? Jesus knows the leaders have rejected him so that death is his fate. In Luke's telling of this parable, the violence steadily increases as each messenger comes. The rejection is firmer all the time. The nation has gone the opposite direction from repentance. Now this brings us in verse 16 through 19 to the stone. What will the owner do? Verse 16, He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. The vineyard is going to go to those outside of Israel. While Israel still has a place in God's plan, in the book of Acts, we find the promise going to all the known world. The point of Jesus' story, God's judgment on the nation is clear as the cloud responds here, may it never be. God forbid that this should happen. And though they wish that the taking of the vineyard should never happen, within days through hearing this, they still decide to, to murder the son. Verse 17, then Jesus begins to ask them who are to be the chief knowers of the Scriptures. He says, well then, why does the Scripture say? What do you say? What then, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected the same has become the head of the corner. We know that to be through references given in our own Bibles here. Psalm 118, 22. Now Luke has already cited this Psalm multiple times. In chapter 13, in chapter number 19. It indicates that God will vindicate his rejected leader. The psalm uses the symbolism of the foundation stone that is crucial to a building. Well, Jesus is the foundation stone of God's plan. Though some may reject him, God will make him the centerpiece. What we see is cornerstone and foundational. Now in our day, these then, how did they view it? Just a stumbling block. 
They saw the Christ, the Son of God, the very one. They said, he's in the way here. Rejection by the Jewish nation is not the end of the plan. As there is no replacing this precious and chosen stone. Note verse 18. Whoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to power. Now to go against that verse, you would have to go against God. So depending on where you find yourself here this morning, I would caution you. Be pretty sure of yourself before you try to go against God. To fall on that stone is to be broken into pieces. Or when that stone falls on someone, it crushes it to powder. Anyone opposing Jesus, God's chief cornerstone, will be crushed by it. Rejecting God's Son has grave consequences. So this parable is Jesus' statement regarding the source of His authority, which the Pharisees needed to know. What is the source of your authority? How do you speak this way? And they weren't happy with the answer of, well, today... The very scriptures that you hold as your authority are being fulfilled in your ears, meaning he was the fulfillment. He is the beloved son and God will vindicate him and exalt him. His death will be followed by resurrection and exaltation to a place of authority. Well, well, this kind of understanding in verse 19 is why they wanted to seize him on the spot. The chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him and they feared the people for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. All right, so they are listening. <laughs> they figured that much out. He's, he's talking about us here. So they decide, well, we can't allow our authority to be challenged anymore. Do you see how they're missing it? Jesus is saying to them, those who do this will have the promise taken from them. They're not reacting to that. They're simply saying, well, how could we kill him and not lose the promise? Well, you can't. Now, due to his popularity, these opinion polls caused their restraint, and so they, they couldn't get to Jesus now, but they determined they were going to get Jesus. Which is sad, because he's warned them. He's indicated to them that the ultimate outcome of their actions would be dashing themselves against God's precious cornerstone. It's almost as if Jesus' moral to his story is, you cannot kill the solid rock. Now I would say to you, two points of response. Number one, this addresses a basic problem in the current church. Harpeth Baptist Church. Kingston Springs United Methodist Church. Pegram Church of Christ. There's a basic problem in the church. To whom does the vineyard belong? We understand that in Jesus' parable here, it was taken from Israel. It was given to others. But did the others whom it was given to now own it? No, it was still owned by the owner. The basic problem is in the, the current church is this idea of ownership. We like to think that it belongs to us with all of our various buildings and all of our laborers. We like to think it belongs to our officers and our elders or our denomination. No, the vineyard owns to the one, is owned by the one who planted it. We forget that. We act as if it belongs to us and to our particular group. We, we kind of 
fuss within ourselves. We're right and you're wrong. And I think God's always saying, no, I'm right. You all are wrong. With that perspective, you can kind of move religion out of the way, can't you? And then you can just worship the one true God. This is what Jesus is trying to say to the religious leaders in Israel. Another point of response here today is a little bit more basic than that. Do you believe in Jesus or not? Do you believe that Jesus is the cornerstone of salvation? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that He rose again so that you could live forever? If not, you need to know that you will be crushed under the heavy stone of God's wrath against your sin. That's what verse 18 teaches. I would encourage you this morning, do not stumble over the stone of salvation. And do not fall under the judgment of God, but believe in His beloved Son. As Jude tells us in Jude 24 and 25, the God of all grace is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. I mean, God couldn't be clear. You have two options here. You can try to stumble over this cornerstone and be crushed. Or you can say, no, He's my cornerstone as well. And you can be a part of God's glory. So we don't mistake the ownership as the church And as individuals, we confess to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. 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 Let's stand.